Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen, unceded lands of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respects to Elders past and present, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today poet, cultural critic and co-editor of the Overland Literary Journal, Evelyn Araluen. I'm so excited to be speaking with her all about her debut collection of poetry and prose. It's called Drop Bear and it's out through UQP or University of Queensland Press. And later on, I'll be speaking with acclaimed writer, editor, illustrator and lawyer, Rebecca Lim, to speak all about her new YA novel, Tiger Daughter. That one is out through Alan and Unwin. I suppose just a heads up with uh, that interview, we'll be touching on some themes of mental health. So if you or someone you know need someone to talk to, you can always call Beyond Blue at any time of the day or night on 1300 22 4636. Evelyn Araluen is a poet, a cultural critic and co-editor of Overland Literary Journal. Her debut collection of poetry and prose confronts the tropes an iconography of an unreconciled nation. Drop Bear is what I'm talking about and it's out now through UQP. Evelyn, thank you so much for your time this afternoon and big congrats on the book. Thank you so much for having me and thank you. Um, it's such a pleasure to, to have you here and, and to spend some time talking to you about your work. Um, I'd love to perhaps start with a poem and just a, a language warning here if you have uh Anyone with little ears in the car might be one to uh, just yeah be aware of. Uh, but Evelyn, do you want to kick us off with uh, with the poem? Uh, yeah. So this piece is called "Acknowledgement of Country." I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects the past, the present, emerging country elders, care custodians. I welcome you all. You all like me to the unpronounceable, the unrememorable time immemorial. Would like to, would like acknowledgement, invitation, invite you all to be acknowledged and welcome invitation and respects to any Indigenous past, present, emerging now, watching me acknowledge, to be acknowledged with my respects and conciliation after the show, during the show, during acknowledgements as I regard Indigenous with glances, with acknowledgement I would like to say sovereignty and reconciliation. I would like sovereignty and reconciliation. I would like to say deadly, gubber, blackfella, mob, gammon, cis. Would like to speak the unpronounceable, to say your name, your nation, again, again, correct at last when compact. Would like to acknowledge my school trip to Alice. Respect humble, unlivable, unimaginable. Respect those black boys in Alice except for those black boys in Alice, except for Alice. Well, I would like to wear your flag on shirt and tote and Facebook filter, 
I would like to graffiti your suburbs with your flag. would like to ask you about the Constitution. would like to acknowledge that I am asking. I would like to acknowledge the decades of struggle from communities I don't drive through. I would like to blame you for your vote and apologise that I didn't bring enough flyers to your suburbs, to your homes. I would like to be invited to your homes to respect, pay my respect, my acknowledgements. I would like all this acknowledged and to remind everyone that we are meeting on land stolen and remind everyone how sad it is you all died, to remind everyone that you're all dead or stolen or silent, how sad it is. I would like respect and acknowledgement for all this respect and acknowledgement. That's Evelyn Araluen reading there from her new collection of poetry and prose, Drop Bear. That one is called Acknowledgement of Country. Um, Evelyn, thank you so much for that reading. I feel like that um, poem really, uh, you know, it's it, it kind of reminds me, I don't know if you've seen the tweet that went around that was like, I would like to acknowledge country before I gaslight you. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how people are now starting to pick up on the way that, you know, you you definitely just have this kind of gestural idea of what of what acknowledging country is and what welcoming people to country might be and people just treat it like words and just this this empty idea for their own virtue signaling so it's it's something that like you kind of have to laugh about it unless you unless you really just want to have a bit of a cry really Mm, yeah and I think this poem really uh captures that so beautifully that it is um you know it's like it's kind of funny at times but it is also deeply violent in ways because I think a lot of people have uh, this really uh, starting to kind of gain this like literacy around how to do these gestures, but perhaps not more meaningful work beyond those um, those words. Um, you know, I'd I'd love to talk a little bit about the the, the themes in this um, collection. You know, it it does kind of span this broad idea of of anti Australiana and and what iconography. Um, of the kind of Australian national identity might mean for yourself, somebody that has that is uh, Aboriginal and has kind of grown up um, in this uh, kind of early colonial um, nation, essentially. I'd love to know, as a starting off point, where did some of these ideas for the book come from? Uh, yeah, so it, it kind of originated with this realisation that I gained from talking with my parents about you know, some of the the ways that they chose to raise us and the influences and the ideas that they wanted to be a part of our upbringing as, you know, a family of Aboriginal children. And we talked about literature, which was very, you know, something that um, is a little bit complicated in my family because their parents didn't necessarily have a lot of literacy and so it was never this given assumption that you would be raised with books in the house and with this love of literature but my parents both really cared about it and they wanted to always ensure that we had access to stories and as much as possible to stories about Australia and about the country and the landscape that they love and that they wanted to raise us to have respect for. So that led them to, you know, stories like Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie um, and Blinky Bill and Norman Lindsay. So it was pretty crazy to, um, you know, for them to go through this experience of trying to raise politically aware and resilient Aboriginal kids with these 
textual influences and ideas that often misrepresented or tokenized the landscape that they knew and loved. And I was just like raised with a double consciousness about it, but I'm so grateful for, but that was also just kind of really weird, you know, sitting down with your parents and they're reading you about, reading to you about like Banksia men and they kind of just like pause for an aside where they're like, oh, you know, this is what they think of you. Um, so I developed this, this oppositionality to a lot of these stories alongside this very complex um, love uh, and and deep kind of nostalgic feeling for. And, um, you know, there's this old adage that you can really only critique something if you've loved it, which I don't agree with, but it kind of was the situation that I went through really trying to find um, my own voice and response about the literary tradition that I was raised with and how it it's kind of in constant oppositionality with the cultural traditions I was also raised with. So, yeah, it's it's that kind of middle place and that conflict that produced a lot of the the poems in this collection. Um, but at the end of the day, like it's really all kind of towards this this emphasis that I want to make, which is that we can love and be interested in and engaged with problematic things it just requires a lot of work and process to to kind of um really unpack where those feelings come from so this is just a book about me unpacking all of that um so everybody just gets to read my play lunch basically There is this really, uh, I suppose, overarching sense of the kind of omnipresent nature of this kind of haunted Australia, this like, you know, that came over with when, you know, I suppose over with the ships, these ideas of the, um, like to fear the outback or to fear the vastness of the landscape and I, you know, I think obviously coming from a sense of really not understanding and not knowing what that was and this kind of settler colonial narrative that's pushed back onto the country. Um, I think it's, yeah, mm. it's it's really interesting how that's kind of played out throughout your work and you kind of bring up these ideas and, and, and icons that are kind of everywhere that kind of um, create this overall sense of what it is or what this country is or what this nation is and, and as you said also like pushing back against that you know you've got um, mentions of you know as you said snuggle pot and cuddle pie blinky bill um, and then all the way through to like the big green signs that you see on the highway and that you see on country mm-hmm. can you I suppose explain a little bit about your ideas behind this kind of mosaic collage approach well, I think it's, you know, you, you, you've described it really well there, which, you know, we're like, yeah, that is just the sort of the reality of um, of living in a settler colonial nation and also one with a relatively recent history of invasion. You know, we're, we're talking about, um, you know, around 230-something years now. Um, uh, and these, the evolution of this settler Australian culture um, has been really strange and really marked by a lot of overarching tropes, particularly around haunting and this inherent fear of the land. So, um, you know, that's something, that's an area that a lot of really incredible Aboriginal scholars and writers and poets are themselves exploring, such as Natalie Harkin and Alison Whitaker. And it's something that... um, 
you know, I, I really wanted to explore, but with this view of, of um, kind of, uh, you know, like I use these, these themes throughout Gather, Spectre and Debris, mm. uh, which are all about um, the basically what colonisation kind of like leaves in the wake and the sort of the rubble that's left over from um, this constant need to build and to rebuild a society so that you can constantly keep asserting this definition of what Australian nationalism is and keep people invested in the project of dispossessing Aboriginal people from their land and constantly reaffirming and repossessing. So it's just, um, you know, I think we get, particularly in a global society, we get Australia in pieces anyway. It's fed back to us in, like, gift shops and on tea towels and stuff in these often really cringy moments of nationalism because people just don't necessarily um, don't necessarily believe in it all of the time or they don't always believe in the version that they're sold. And when you start looking for evidence of, you know, what makes a national identity, when you start trying to research that and compile a poetic story... It's everywhere, you know, it's everywhere, but the narrative is not coherent. It's just weird little knickknacks and kitsch um, that we kind of just, we just buy it and sort through it and then it becomes unfashionable and then in 20 or 30 years it'll be trendy again. So it's just so strange to, like, research a nation in its own trends. Mm. Um, Yeah. And as you said, it is still comparatively such a young kind of colonised country, well, like the idea of Australia, it's obviously a very ancient land. But I'd love to kind of touch on what you said about um, some other amazing Aboriginal writers and and poets, you know, Alison Whittaker, Natalie Harkin. Um, There is a line in one of your earlier poems that called uh, Learning Bunjalung on Tharawal, and you write that we are relearning this place through poetry. And I'm, I'm very interested if you feel like, I suppose, a sense of responsibility in your work to write back against these really dominant narratives that have often, you know, misrepresented this country. Yeah, I, I really do. Um, I don't feel that it should be every Aboriginal person's responsibility. I feel like that creates a really harmful and limiting potential for what we as... Um, you know, what we as survivors of colonisation are allowed to do with our own time. So I never want to... I never want to make my work an expectation, but what I do think, you know, as the beneficiary of a of an education um, that my parents fought really hard for me to get um, and an education that in the ideas of, you know, the West is a very good one, um, I wanted to make sure that all of the work that I do is clearing space, um, you know, clearing out some of that rubble of colonisation that often disfigures or obscures our own stories, makes it harder to access those stories or to talk freely about them because you have to just so constantly break down the ideas and the influence of the colony over you know, over those stories and over those representations. So by kind of, you know, by deconstructing some of that, by satirising and teasing and undermining some of it, I kind of 
you know, I, I attempt to get a little bit closer to what the free and sort of comfortable articulation of our identities and our culture and our traditions through through contemporary poetry. Like, I try to just access that um, a little bit more closely and intimately than I feel like I would have been able to if I'd just kind of disregarded the elephant in the room of settler coloniality and Australian nationalism. And I'm hoping that that clears space for other people as well to themselves engage and feel, you know... Um, feel unencumbered by some of that mm. yeah I feel like you've, you're doing um, the work of exactly kind of the the three ways that you set out this book gathering spectre and debris and kind of yeah going through all of that and then articulating it back so yeah so well and it, yeah I think it's just an incredible contribution to poetry about what this country is um I'd love to, I suppose, talk a little bit about how this collection was made. I know that you're a recipient of the Next Chapter Fellowship. I, I'd love to know what that experience was like for you and kind of how it impacted, you know, the words that we read today. Yeah, um, and thank you for your, um, thank you for, you know, your your lovely words about all of it too. Um, but, yeah, this, the Next Chapter was a really amazing opportunity that was organised by the Wheeler Centre and funded through the ESOP Foundation. And I'm just, like, I can't get over how grateful and lucky I am to have had their support um, throughout this because it did give me the space to develop ideas that were really kind of in a very early, um, in a very early kind of thinking. Um, and I got to work with Tony Birch, who's a really great, um, mm-hmm. Aboriginal poet and writer um, and, you know, having some mentorship and guidance over the project um, was really important, particularly because, you know, writing can be isolating if you aren't aren't um, involving yourself constantly in the broader literary community. Um, I'm lucky, again, you know, that I got to do so much of that before COVID mm. Um and, you know, I spent I spent a couple of months after lockdown kind of finalising and further developing the, um, the collection to get it to its final stage and got to work with a really amazing uh, black editor, Ellen Van Nieven, who is themselves a wonderful poet. Um, so it's all just been basically like a process of collaboration and support. Um, as, you know, as you'd expect, like... We're very communal people. We're always informed by elders and by others in our in our spaces. So it makes perfect sense that this book was developed um, alongside, um, you know, such a broad network of other amazing writers. And I'm just very lucky and very grateful that I got to put the book together that I did um, with their guidance. It's just a really great sign of how strong and um, supportive Aboriginal poetry is today, really. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's so much, uh, I suppose, intertextuality throughout your book, kind of, you know, pointing to various cultural references and then just reading your acknowledgements. I think it is, it's so extensive and it does really speak to the... um, the, the richness, I think, of, um, you know, of poetry and, and also just the, 
the the amazing support and as you said the the communal sense of of putting something like this out into the world and it was I just yeah I really loved reading all the acknowledgements um I'd love to know a little bit more about what it was like to work with Alan Van Niven we had them on last year to talk about their I think it was last year to talk about throat um you know another incredible Mm. poet what was that kind of collaboration like between the two of you Oh, that was great. Um, Ellen is just one of the most beautiful, darling people I've ever I've ever met. Um, and they, like, really early on in my career, um, reached out to me uh, with just like a lot of support. We were shortlisted for the same prize, and Ellen like sent me a message and was just like, "Hey, it's so nice to it's so nice to you know." Uh, see that there's another um, you know there's more black fellas out there writing I think that's so great and just like from the get go I truly have been just so lucky um, to have Ellen's support I am a huge admirer of their work and Throat is just like such a stunning collection it really just moves in such complex um, and hard hitting ways and I remember when I read it um, sort of around the time that, you know, we were kind of in conversation about what I would be doing with my book. I was just, like, so stunned, um, especially seeing Ellen's development between Comforts, Comfort Food, um, which they released in 2016, and then Throat last year. It's such a growth um, and such a such a strength, and it was in very, very intimidating to share my kind of meagre offerings in response to that. Um, but Ellen's an amazing editor. They just have like such a sharp eye and such a uncompromising sense of um, people's own abilities and strengths. So Ellen just like does not accept when you know if like if if you come to Ellen with a mediocre or a bad poem, Ellen will just be like, "Yeah, you can do, you can do better." than that you know you can do better um and it's just it's just wonderful it's such a wonderful um uh it's such a wonderful thing to have somebody whose backbone is stronger than yours pushing you when you don't necessarily know where you're you know where you're even able to go yourself Mm. I love that what a beautiful uh, collaboration I'd um just before I let you go, I'd love to know, you know, you are the uh, co-editor of Overland Literary Journal. Um, I believe you stepped into the role last year. I'd love to know how you see your own work fitting in, I suppose your own kind of poetry and writing work fitting in with your role as editor and how they, yeah, inform each other. Yeah, it's it's strange because you develop these, um, uh, you know, you develop all these rules and um, this sense of yourself as an editor with other people and then when you're kind of on the receiving end or you're self-editing your own creative work, you just sort of, you know, you realise that um, uh, there are just some times in which doesn't matter how supportive an editor can be, you know, or how how ruthless they can be. Like, you know, sometimes you just have to push yourself into uncomfortable places and it's only really by doing that that you're going to get the right work out of it. So it's made me simultaneously a little bit more confident in my own ability to, ability to advise um, because now I know what I'm capable of, like going through a really rigorous process. Uh, but it's also made me, like, feel a little bit bad for all the people that I've hounded for work where I've been like no come on please I really want something from you and then just 
you know, knowing now the experience of kind of put put something really hard down onto a page. Um, so yeah, it's it's um, it's definitely something that I think is going to inform how I work in the future as well. But you know, always learning, always growing, um, always got to make sure that you're just picking up new skills and abilities to best to do your job better I guess yeah absolutely um Evelyn it has been such a pleasure chatting with you thank you so much for your beautiful words and for your time this afternoon thank you so much for having me really appreciate it that was Evelyn Araluen there, poet, cultural critic, co-editor of Overland Literary Journal, talking all about her incredible debut poetry and prose collection. It is called Drop Bear and it's out now through UQP. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Wen Zhao is the daughter and only child of Chinese immigrants whose move to the lucky country has proven to be not so lucky. Wen and her friend Henry Zhao, whose mum and dad are also struggling immigrants, both dream of escaping from their unhappy circumstances and form a plan to sit an entrance exam to a selective high school far from home. But when tragedy strikes, it will take all of Wen's resilience and resourcefulness to get herself and Henry through the storm that follows. Tiger Daughter is the new young adult novel by acclaimed writer, editor, illustrator and lawyer, woman of many hats, Rebecca Lim. Rebecca, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much for having me on there. It is, um, it's such a pleasure. Um, I've really loved delving into this, uh, this world over the last couple of days. I'd love to start with the beautiful dedication of this book, which reads, To My Son and Daughter, who I'm raising in their image and no one else's, a really powerful opener. Can you explain why it was important to dedicate this book to your children? Well, it's really important because I think um, I'm probably like the anti-tiger mother, so I'm probably raising them in the most slack and disorganised fashion possible. But I think I just didn't want to kind of push them through that high-pressure kind of um, existence that a lot of the Chinese kids that I grew up with and, and that I myself went through when I was younger. So I think it's a bit more laissez-faire at our house now, probably too much so. <laughs> I suppose just on that, the title of the book, Tiger Daughter, it kind of does draw on some, you know, racialized Asian stereotypes of the tiger mom, um, you know, Amy Chua's book. And yeah, I'd, I'd love if you can kind of speak a little bit about why why this title. Sure. It actually was a deliberate play on that because I think um, it, it is a negative stereotype that, you know, we're a model minority and, and the reason we're like that is because our parents put us through so much pressure and, you know, we all come out at the end, these sort of robots with, you know, nice degrees or whatever. But um, for me, it was really important, um, having come through a process like that myself, to reclaim that kind of idea for the child. And so this book is very much, you know, if you come out of an upbringing like that, you either kind of break into pieces, you get really rebellious, you kind of like break away completely or you come out a sort of harder, faster version of yourself. And this is kind of a celebration of the child's journey rather than the parent's journey. Yeah, absolutely. And the, you know, the main protagonist in this book is, you know, is a, a young person that, you know, the book opens with Wen and Henry in a remedial English class. And they're the only two Chinese Australian kids in the class. Wen doesn't really need to be there but wants to be there to support her friend Henry and you know I think that scene really sets up the book so well in terms of 
I suppose, how the fluency in the dominant language in English is a really big point of access to their schooling life. And it's, you know, it's a really important tool, I suppose, to help navigate the world that is, you know, a largely white, I believe, affluent kind of school system. Can you tell me why it was important for you to start the book there? Sure. Um, I think a lot of kids, I guess, from a migrant background or a refugee background are quite invisible to um, so-called normal school children. They don't sort of see the extra work that goes into these kids, um, you know, trying to sort of navigate the, the normal school day that everyone else just takes for granted. And so for a lot of these kids, like one is more fluent, obviously, like you've noticed, um, than Henry is in sort of the customs and the language and the traditions of Australian life. But um, I wanted them both in there so that I could illustrate that the more fluent you become on that sort of continuum, um, the easier it is for you to actually pretend that you're an Australian child who's just going to an Australian school and getting through your day. If you don't have any of those anchors, like you don't speak the language properly, you don't understand simple idioms like happy medium um mm. stuff like that can completely you know it just goes over the heads of a lot of these kids and no one sort of stops to say are you struggling like can you understand what's going on or do you need me to just slow down and take you through the process and give you some background so that that class was kind of just to tell you know i guess so-called normal or mainstream children there's kids all around you who aren't on the same playing field as you are and, you know, just sort of take a look out for these guys and try and, like, help them in their lives because they've got an extra level of difficulty that you guys will never even know about. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a real insight into just the day-to-day of some of these young people that have this kind of extra learning to do on that daily basis in order to kind of navigate what is the dominant culture, particularly at this school, You know, I think it's really interesting how, I suppose, language works throughout the book, you know, kind of communicating across languages and also, I think, across the power dynamics that are at play, both, you know, at school with the teachers and also at home with the, uh, you know, both of their parents Um, and then, you know, the communication, the beautiful communication that they often have with each other. Uh, Can you speak a little bit about, I suppose, the language and how that plays, plays out in the book? Sure. So, like, starting off in that remedial class kind of gives you, gives you an idea, I guess, of, like, um, how important it is for um, first-gen and second-generation kids to sort of navigate, um, you know, the external kind of cultural institutions that we have and all the kinds of, you know, languages that teachers sort of, like, teach us about. And then at home there are sort of cultural traditions that, you know, you don't necessarily ever talk about at school, but they're always sort of silently there. And so um, for me, coming from a Chinese background, there's obviously Confucian philosophy and and all that sort of stuff about being filial and um, obedient and, you know, becoming very educated so that you can, you know, raise your parents up and make them proud and look after them in their old age, that kind of thing. So a lot of kids, and I can't speak for all backgrounds, but a lot of kids from, I guess, um, migrant and, and refugee backgrounds, they've got that added layer of all of the, tra- the traditions that their parents brought to this country, um, you know, good or bad, have come along with them and they've got that kind of superstructure sitting on top of them as well as the stuff that they're learning about in the Western sphere. Mm. So it is, yeah, it is about sort of navigating home language. It's about navigating school language. And it's, it's also about navigating, I guess, structures of power or, you know, bias that are in both those spheres, the domestic and the public. Yeah. I'd I'd love to, I suppose, pick up what you said about the kind of Confucian philosophy that seems to be a real thread throughout the book. And, you know, there's quite a few references to it. And it's, it's not a religion, but it does really play out 
in a, a deep philosophical way about how is best to live your life, what is good. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure, and and that sort of like um, plays into the title as well because um, uh, Confucian philosophy is sort of an unspoken thing that underlies a lot of, I guess, Chinese um, family structures as well as power structures, so governmental structures. And the thing about that philosophy, and I can kind of speak to it a little bit more now because I have read it from cover to cover a few times, mm-hmm. it's very male-centred. And so, you know, the, the basic philosophy is we're trying to raise our sons to be good, benevolent, you know, trustworthy, intelligent gentlemen. And so in that philosophy, I think it mentions women two or three times at most. And, you know, the kinds of, like, guidance for female children is be good to your mum and dad, maybe. And the other one is, you know, women are sort of at the level of servants and small men, and small men is this concept of the uneducated man. And there's also one reference, I think, to a female minister, and I think Confucius himself says, well, you can't count that person as a minister then because it's a woman. Mm-hmm. So it's it's trying to speak back to, I guess, 2,500 years of raising up the male children to, to sort of bring the family name forward and bring the government forward and raise society and just saying, well, where's the space for women and girls in that philosophy? How are they supposed to raise themselves, I guess? Mm. Yeah, I think it's something that when speaks about wanting to be a man in the sense that there's this kind of gendered idea of, what is good, uh, you know, it's what a proper, good person yeah. is, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a, that's a big hard thing to, I suppose, navigate uh, as, a, as a young person and it's really interesting to see how that kind of plays out throughout the book. I'd love to kind of, I, you know, I don't want to give any spoilers, but, you know, there is a, a really a big tragedy that happens in the book um, and it's something about something that you write about with a lot of heart and generosity and it is through the eyes of the young protagonist when I'd love to know I suppose you know what you wanted to kind of communicate with readers with you know kind of what happened there. Sure um, with that particular event um, I guess it's sort of um it's taking to a logical end conclusion. A lot of the despair, I think, that um, you know, migrant women have in the home where they don't speak English, they can't, they don't feel confident enough about leaving the house or interacting with strangers, um, and they, their world becomes very closed down and very narrow and very shut off. And I guess that that particular event that happens, it's sort of like it's a logical conclusion for someone who just feels so much despair and so much entrapment that they can't do anything else about their situation and, you know, they do something irrevocable. Um, and so for, for Wern, like, I think towards the end of the book, she begins to understand why a woman would do something so drastic and so final because there is that sense that if you don't push back against your boundaries or, you know, people will continually try and shut you down and try and sort of box you in, for some people it's just something, it's like a wall that they can't see over and it's like very, very final to them and the only way to end the pain is to do something very final. Um, so I think what I was trying to call out was that, you know, there, there is often that myth of the model minority. If you're if you're an ethnic family who's keeping its head down and working hard and not causing any trouble, people just look away from you. They just think, oh, well, they're getting on with their business. You know, they're hanging out in Chinatown. They're all keeping to themselves. That's fantastic. But within these homes where there is that sort of sense of despair, where, you know, for example, the father goes out and, and people treat him unkindly or he's subject to racism or bullying or whatever, 
that father will bring that sort of despair and unkindness back into the home. And for a woman whose, you know, whole world is the four walls of her house and she doesn't have a very big network, um, what I was trying to portray is that, you know, these women and girls who are often trapped in the home, sometimes the only way out that they see for themselves is something really kind of negative and desperate. And, and that's kind of what I wanted to shine a light on. If you have just joined us, we are chatting with Rebecca Lim all about her fantastic new young adult novel called Tiger Daughter. Um, Rebecca, I'd love to kind of yeah keep going with that. Like there is a real um, exploration of mental health throughout this book. Um, you know, not only through Henry's mother, but Wen's father, and kind of looking at I suppose culturally conditioned ideas that we have around mental health, um, and I suppose how you know people think about things like depression and anxiety in very different ways. I suppose, what did you want to draw out in, in terms of um, relation to, to mental health? Um, I think I, I just wanted to normalise it for um, a lot of children because, you know, often in, in books for kids, we sort of, it's a one-issue book, right? Like somebody's looking for a boyfriend and they have to choose between two boys or, you know, someone's dad left home. Um, I think what I was trying to do with this book, with this book was try to make it more realistic and, and just say, you know, it's not a key theme of this book, um, I guess, mental health. It's just something that's like a low-level hum that just runs all the way through the story because kids are in these unsafe situations in the home where somebody, at least one person or one parent, is suffering from, you know, mental health issues. And they've got to drag themselves out of bed every day and go out and, you know, earn the bread and look after the family. And that has ripple effects on everyone in the home. So I wanted to normalise it because I think a lot of kids are given this sort of, you know, happy Australian kids type thing, the Vegemite sort of story that everyone has happy home lives and, you know, why, why isn't yours the same as all of ours? But in fact, you know, mental health is a huge issue in a, a Western affluent family as much as it is in a migrant, you know, less affluent family. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think something that kind of comes from, um, I suppose, that the more yeah, extreme portrayals of hard mental health times that we see in the book is the uh, the reaction is this kind of great care that happens, um, you know, between friends and also, you know, in the family. I'd love to know, I suppose, your thoughts around the, I suppose, just the care between the relationship of um, of Henry and Wen and, yeah, how, how you see that playing out. Um. I really wanted to, I guess, uh, just have a relationship in, in a young adult novel that wasn't based on, is he attracted to me? Mm. And so it was really important for me to just have a caring relationship where, in fact, you know, the female is caring for the male for a change. It's not the male going out, you know, slaying dragons for the female or trying to get her attention or, you know, the usual tropes that we see in YA literature. I just wanted two friends of different genders to be able to look out for each other and actually take notice of each other and, you know, regardless of whether they're male or female, to give each other care and to give each other, you know, like, I guess, like, little learning sort of hopeful um, instances. For example, Henry's trying to teach Wern better maths and, you know, Wern's trying to teach Henry better English at the start of the, the novel and they're, they're really just trying to lift each other up. And I just wanted to, you know, just have a lovely friendship that wasn't based on some kind of simmering sexual tension, which is often, you know, the kind of thing that a lot of YA books are sort of centred on. And I know it's a huge part of being a teen and growing up, you know, trying to find the one. But for this one, I just wanted to say, you know, there's no there's no question here about whether or not they're ever going to date because they're not. They're just mates. 
mm. they're just trying to help each other and it's just a really simple, clean, uncomplicated relationship in the beginning. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a really beautiful one to to witness and I I do agree. I feel like there is so much uh, in just in the YA that I've read that is kind of all about that attraction between two people um, that, yeah, it it shouldn't always be the kind of central plot point Um, and, you know, if you have two people of different genders, it doesn't mean that they're going to fall in love and date. Um, So, yeah, I think you... Go to the school prom. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, Rebecca, you know, you do a lot of work uh, around um, making sure that we have a great representation of intersectional voices. I know you've done the uh, Meet Me at the Intersection. Uh, Can you, I suppose, talk to me a little bit about where you see this new book sitting within your your broader kind of your work? You know, you're prolific. I think you've published more than 20 books. Um, I suppose for you, where does this book, Tiger Daughter, sit within the rest of your, your work? Um, it, it wasn't so much a sort of like big advocacy push putting this book out. It was actually a really personal sort of quiet fury moment that made me write this. And so my daughters are about um, the age group that this is aimed at. One of them is coming up through um, primary school and will be in senior school next year. And the other one, um, when I actually got the idea for this novel, was in year seven. And so for me, this this particular book, um, I went to her parent-teacher interview and they basically said, we've got a tailored book um, list for your daughter and she looks just like me um, here is and at the top of that book list were Picnic at Hanging Rock, Playing Betty Bow and um, The Getting of Wisdom I mean I don't think you know anyone I know has read The Getting of Wisdom at least for like 35 years so to get that kind of book list in you know the, what year was it 2019 and, and say that this, we thought really hard about this and this is tailored to your daughter here it is I just thought you know there are no um, stories on this book list by Maxine Beneva Clark, Alice Pung you know like mm. other diverse authors and I just thought if there isn't a story that speaks to my daughter's experience and her migrant friend's experience, I'm going to bloody write one. So for me, like, it, it was just part of that whole... Because, I, you know, I do notice, like, what comes out of publishing houses and I do notice that it's getting better, but it's still not that great. Um, but to have, like, at my daughter's specific school, there's at least... 50% Asian or South Asian kids and they're first gen or second gen and for none of them to have a story written by someone from their background on that book list which is tailored for them I just thought it's an absolute like wicked shame so that's where this book came from it was just me just thinking it hasn't changed in three decades so I'd better get off my ass and do something about it. Well, I mean, I would be so happy if my future kids got to read this on their um, on their schooling list, but they'd read it anyway. But absolutely, I think you know uh, that that what you just said, Maxine Beniba Clark, Alice Pung, um, your book. I think that sounds like a great reading list. <laughs> so um, hopefully that that's you know that's hopefully the it'll change towards that one day. Yeah, let's let's see. <laughs> absolutely, um, Rebecca. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's been wonderful to chat to you. Thanks so much, Beth. Take care of yourself. Uh, Tiger Daughter is out now through Alan and Unwin. You can pick up a copy uh, at your favourite bookstore. Uh, it has come to the time where I have to say goodbye to you for another week. That hour just always goes so quickly. Uh, but I do want to say, of course, a big thank you to my wonderful guests who joined me this afternoon, Evelyn Araluen, to speak all about her new poetry and prose collection, Drop Bear, that went out through UQP, and of course, Rebecca Lim to speak about Tiger Daughter, that went out through Alan and Unwin. And I'll catch you next time. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. 
We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website.